Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for today's webcast. I want to let you know we'll be beginning the presentation in about one minute. We'll let some uh, people file in and uh, get situated before we begin. But again, we'll be starting in about one minute. Hello again, everyone. Want to let you know as you're filing in, we're going to begin things in about 30 seconds. But if you're here for OSHA inspection, how to handle it and prevent it, you're in the right place. Uh, just get settled in and we'll be beginning again in a little less than 30 seconds. Hi everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, OSHA Inspection, How to Handle It and Prevent It, sponsored by JJ Keller. My name is Kevin Drulli. I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health Magazine, and I'll be moderating today's session. Thanks for joining us. We hope you all are safe and well amid the COVID-19 pandemic. In a few minutes, we'll start the presentation, but first I wanna go over some preliminary items. The views of today's speakers and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication doesn't mean the council or magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we'll conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, type your question, and click the send button. Feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the question and answer session to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but because of the large number of participants today, we might not get to every question. Any unanswered questions will be forwarded along to today's speakers. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey that will appear on a separate screen. We'll let you know more about that after the presentation. This webcast is archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com events. You may also receive a link in a post-event email. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our speakers today are Ed Zaleski and Lisa Newberger. Ed is a senior editor EHS at JJ Keller, researching and creating content for a variety of safety-related topics while contributing to a number of products. He specializes in issues including walking working surfaces, powered industrial trucks, and injury illness record keeping. Lisa also serves as a senior editor EHS at JJ Keller, specializing in workplace safety and environmental topics with a primary focus on hazardous waste. She's lead editor for JJ Keller's environmental alert newsletter and its Comprehensive Environmental Compliance Manual. Ed and Lisa, we thank you for being here today. Ed, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Thank you so much, Kevin. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Okay, so to give you an idea, overview, sort of, of what to expect today, we're going to start by looking at specific areas that OSHA is targeting for enforcement. Uh, that'll help you decide if you might be at increased risk of getting an inspection. Then we're gonna walk through the inspection process from start to finish, and we'll provide some do's and some don'ts, and we'll give you some information on your rights, of course, both during and after an inspection. And of course, we'll talk about how you can prepare your company and your employees for an inspection. Uh, you know, you're gonna have a lot of these questions like you see here, like what's going on and what are my rights? Well, knowing your rights, of course, as well as your obligations, can help make an inspection go a lot more smoothly. 
So I mentioned targeting. Uh, OSHA doesn't target everyone for inspection. They have to prioritize. You know, between federal and the state agencies, there's around 80,000 inspections a year, but there's millions of businesses. OSHA doesn't hit everybody every year. They prioritize, and certain things are going to put you at greater risk. So the boxes on the left are the most likely reasons that OSHA would learn of something dangerous, and they're going to put that as a first priority. A little bit later, we will talk about reporting serious injuries to OSHA, you know, fatalities, hospitalizations that you've been required to report for the last few years, amputations, loss of an eye. Well, with that reporting, OSHA has a lot more opportunities to learn about a serious injury right after it happened. Of course, in the middle box, there are complaints. Uh, we do get a lot of questions wondering if employee complaints, for example, can lead to inspections, and they can. They don't always, but you know, these days with cell phones, people could send a photo of a life-threatening situation. OSHA may respond to that a little sooner. Or they may follow up from previous inspections. Uh, as you can see, continuing in the second column, they may get referrals from other agencies like the EPA or the Department of Transportation. Uh, if, if you had an inspection from one of them, OSHA may come knocking through. So the point is, you know, OSHA doesn't just randomly pick workplaces to inspect or throw darts at a board or anything. But then some inspections are programmed. And this means that OSHA decides to focus on a particular issue or a particular injury, in industry. Now, OSHA uses local emphasis programs, national emphasis programs, and even the site-specific targeting program. Now, just a few years ago, more than half of inspections were programmed where they were looking at these emphasis things. But after that change in the injury reporting rule, now more than half of inspections are unprogrammed. They're responsive. So currently there are several national emphasis programs on a variety of issues. They include things like combustible dust, uh, process safety management, trenching, trenching and excavation is a big one in construction, of course, a lot of hazards. And in addition, the agency has more than 140 regional and local emphasis programs. Now the most comprehensive is that site-specific targeting program I mentioned. That targets workplaces that have the highest injury and illness rates, like four or even five times the national average rate for that particular industry. Obviously, that's going to put you on an inspection list. Now, going forward, OSHA is using the data that employers electronically submit each year to help make those selections. So if you take a look at this slide again, these are most of the reasons that might bring OSHA to your door. Now, I promised to talk about reporting severe injuries and illnesses to OSHA because that impacts your odds of being inspected. So Lisa's going to tell you a little bit about that. All right. Thanks so much, Ed. So uh, Ed mentioned that, that OSHA had changed the types of incidents that have to be reported over the phone or online. And the prior requirement at the federal level was to notify OSHA within eight hours of any fatality or the work-related hospitalization of three or more employees. Now that changed in 2015. Now the fatality requirement stayed the same um, and you have that, that eight hours to report, but now you have to call or uh, use OSHA's online form when just one employee is hospitalized. 
Now, hopefully you've never had three employees sent to the hospital at the same time, but you may have had one employee go to the hospital. And since that happens more often, you're more likely to have to call or otherwise report an incident to OSHA. Now, going to the emergency room, just going to the emergency room for something like stitches, that's not a hospitalization. That's considered outpatient care. OSHA only wants you to report inpatient hospitalizations. And the key is that the employee must be formally admitted to the hospital for care. Now you have uh, 24 hours to make that report, 24 hours from the time uh, of the work-related incident or of the time that you learn it occurred. And also um, that applies to amputations and the loss of an eye. You have that 24-hour time frame with those also. So that rule changed how OSHA inspections are prioritized. So again, if, if you have just one employee hospitalized, you're going to end up talking to OSHA. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to get an inspection, but you might. And at the very least, you'll have to explain to them what happened and, and what corrective action you'll be taking. OSHA puts these reports into three categories. So the highest category includes fatalities, hospitalizations, amputations, imminent danger, and then hazards related to emphasis programs. So generally all of those things are going to automatically trigger an on-site inspection. The next category includes things uh, such as injuries to temporary workers, and then those referrals from other agencies, um, BPP sites, uh, and so on. So in this category, OSHA is encouraged, uh, encourages its inspectors to conduct an inspection. And then the final category is called a rapid response investigation, and that's done over the phone. These investigations discuss the incident, explain steps that you have to take, and, and so on. Now, if more information is needed, OSHA will follow up with a letter to the employer. Uh, about 45% of serious injury reports uh, were resulting in on-site inspections, and then the, the rest are getting those rapid response phone inquiries. Now, these numbers may be a little off from, from COVID uh, in the last few months, but, uh, but they're, they're generally right around that. Now, if you need to report a serious injury to OSHA, you're going to have to provide the information shown here on this slide. So that includes the name of the employee um, and information about the next of kin if there were a fatality, uh, as well as the location, the time of the event, how it occurred. And so you need to be prepared to describe how the injury happened and so on. In addition, you'll want to report what you've done to temporarily correct the hazard, and then what actions you're taking to permanently correct the hazard to prevent anything similar from happening in the future. If you don't have all of that information, um, or you don't have the information that OSHA requests, then you're going to need to call back. Note that OSHA will call you within a day to explain if you have to conduct an incident investigation on your own. If you don't get that call within 24 hours, it's more than likely OSHA is coming to conduct an inspection at your site. So be ready for that. Now the point of communicating with OSHA 
is to prove that you've done a root cause analysis and that you're planning to address the hazard. So during the call, be very careful about saying things like it was the uh, injured worker's fault. You wanna show you've gotten to the root cause of the problem and that you're going to correct it. Now, we know that if an injury occurred, it's possible the employee did do something wrong, but you, know, you should have procedures and safeguards in place too. For example, if an employee had an amputation, why didn't the machine guard prevent it? Or if an employee lost an eye, why wasn't the employee wearing eye protection? Blaming the employee for bypassing guards or failing to wear PPE is simple, uh, but as a safety manager, you have some responsibilities in those areas as well. So if you simply blame the employee for the injury, OSHA will document that statement and it could be used against you during the inspection. And with that, I'm gonna turn things back over to Ed. Thank you, Lisa. And we're gonna change gears a bit and say, all right, the inspector showed up. What happens now? What happens when they knock on the door? Do you have to let them in? What documentation? What, what can we expect? Well, no matter the reason for an inspection, of course, you need to know what to expect. And the list of questions here, of course, may come to mind. Other issues might involve what's the scope of the inspection? And if we agree on a scope, can it be expanded? So over the next few slides, we're gonna provide you with more information on a lot of these questions, and more importantly, help you prepare for and get through an OSHA inspection. So if OSHA does knock on the door, actually before that knock happens, you wanna make sure that you understand the inspection process from start to finish. Okay, so the first thing a compliance officer will do is ask to see the owner or the safety and health manager and they'll show their credentials. Now, if they don't do that, you should ask to see their credentials. We have seen stories of people pretending to be from OSHA <clears throat> for whatever reason they wanna access a workplace. So you do have a right to see the officer's credentials. And in fact, OSHA encourages you to do that. <clears throat> now, some people ask if they can photocopy them. Uh, usually the inspector won't allow that. But if you do have questions about the validity, you can call your local office, OSHA office, for verification. You can also ask for a little time to get the necessary personnel available. Uh, and OSHA will allow up to an hour for this. This means you don't have to start an inspection right away if the people you need on that walkthrough are not available. That is, if you can get them there within an hour. Typically, you're going to want your safety director, uh, maybe a maintenance supervisor. If this is an incident investigation, an injury, the supervisor for the area where it happened. Uh, if you have a union, you may need to have a long union representation. And if this is a very serious injury, like a fatality, uh, something like that, hospitalization, you may even want legal representation and members of upper management. Maybe the CEO needs to come along. Now, companies do ask, do we have to let OSHA in when they knock? And frankly, the short answer is yes. Uh, but you can ask for a warrant. OSHA will get one because they're authorized to get a warrant. And so if you do ask for a warrant, do be aware that, you know, the inspector is not going to be happy about having to jump through extra hoops. And the inspection uh, might be a little bit more aggressive once the person does come back with a warrant. So what to expect? Well, inspections can be very short. They might be 20 minutes. They might take up to six months. 
the time difference depends on the reason for the inspection, what brought them there, the size of the facility. You know, a small retail store is a lot easier than uh, some of these huge manufacturing plants. Type of business, the types of the hazards and the complexity of the hazards involved, things like that. Now, an inspection should begin with an opening conference. And this is where OSHA explains why they're there. And in this case, they'll give you a copy of any complaints made, if there were any. Uh, they won't give you referrals from other agencies. But you'll have that opening conference to explain why they're there. Then you'll have a facility walkthrough. And then after that, you'll have a closing conference. All right, so let's start with the opening conference. This is where the inspector, again, explains what brought them to your facility and what the inspection will cover. Now, this will give you an idea of what you're dealing with. Is this a complaint? Did they show up under an emphasis program? Uh, was it a referral? Was it something else? Now, if it's a complaint, again, OSHA should give you a copy. However, they will not tell you the name of the person who complained and don't even ask because you can't do anything to an employee who complained to OSHA that's under whistleblower protection laws. And you don't even want to create the impression, who, who ratted us out? We don't, we don't want to be creating that impression. In addition, you can certainly ask how long the inspection is likely to take. Uh, you want to know what you're dealing with. You know, if the inspector plans to be on site for several days or a week, uh, you mean to, may need to start clearing calendars right away. And of course, uh, be polite. I've got that as the first bullet on this slide, but it's important to keep in mind. Uh, inspectors are just like any other people. You know, some of them are easy to deal with, some maybe not so much, but you can control your reaction so you can remain polite. Do remember, of course, this is a potentially serious matter with legal implications. So you don't wanna get so comfortable that you end up saying things that, well, might come back to bite you, frankly. All right, thanks, Ed, really good advice. Now, keep in mind, not all inspections are the same. Some employers, you know, ask whether OSHA can show up at any time. Um, and, and normally they show up during business hours. Now, the only time OSHA is going to show up outside business hours is, is if there's a fatality or multiple hospitalizations. So even on a weekend, if there's a fatality, it could be very likely that OSHA is going to show up at the accident site. Now that's something to keep in mind if you run more than one shift or if your facility is open on weekends. If a fatality is reported, OSHA may show up while emergency personnel, um, police, uh, fire and rescue are still there. And then once the site's cleared, OSHA may conduct the inspection right away. And then you won't have that opening conference probably until the next day. After the opening conference, OSHA will conduct a records review. And this includes uh, three to five years of your injury and illness logs, um, any of your written programs, PPE hazard assessments, uh, any training records, um, those kinds of things. Now, you do need a written certification that PPE hazard assessment was done, and missing that certification is a really common violation. Also, keep in mind that no matter what brings OSHA to your facility, they're going to look at your HAZCOM program, your lockout tagout program, that's assuming you're required to have those, of course, and if you can deliver those records quickly, you should do so. Uh, just 
don't volunteer records that the inspector didn't ask for unless it's something you know is really going to help you. Um, maybe like uh, if you have a comprehensive safety and health program, just keep in mind that, you know, uh, volunteering things can sometimes open a can of worms you may not want open. So again, just be really sure if you're handing things over that, uh, that you're really confident that they're going to help you and not hurt you. Yeah, and I want to add, you know, generally for records like these, I think you have four hours to produce them if they're looking at your safety programs. And speaking of safety programs, actually, today we're giving everyone an opportunity to elect a complimentary trial to the J.J. Keller Safety Management Suite, which has a lot of our prop, all of our most popular safety management tools, and that includes templates for written safety programs. It also includes customizable training programs audit inspection checklists, uh, state regulations, federal regulations, and much more. So we're going to open a poll here, let you select your interests on the screen. And along with that, we will email you our OSHA inspections white paper, which kind of outlines a lot of what we're covering in the presentation here. So please let us know if you're, you're interested in that and what particular areas you're interested in, safety plans, you know, video training, things like that. Uh, and Kevin, did you want to send out a question here while we're waiting? Yeah, certainly. No, all, all great things. And, you know, like you say, as folks are uh, answering this poll, let's take a question. Uh, it asks, how far back will OSHA review the 300 logs? Well, you're, Lisa, do you want to take that one? Do you want me to take that? Oh, I can take it. So um, OSHA can uh, look at your logs up to five years uh, worth. You have you're required by the regulations to keep uh, all of your injury and illness records, uh, record keeping records, part 1904 for five years. And so OSHA can certainly throughout that time go and look uh, at any of your logs. Now keep in mind, you're, you're not going to be cited for any one particular violation for uh, longer than six months past when that violation occurred, but you can be cited for not keeping your logs up to date for that five-year period. So it's a little bit complicated there, but it, the short answer is five years. <laughs> Another one is asking, how long do we keep training records and how far back will OSHA check them? Uh, I'll grab that one, and that's a tough one. Training records um, have different retention periods sometimes specified in regulation. Uh, and frankly, well, to give you an idea, certain things, hazard communication we talk about has a training requirement. Uh, you probably want to document that, that the training was provided, but there's no retraining requirement. Now, if an employee was trained on hire and an inspector comes through seven or eight years later and, and you know, that employee is still working there with, with chemicals, you're probably going to want the documentation that the training was provided. So keeping those records, at least for the duration of employment, would be a good idea. Uh, beyond that, um, you know, if there's been refresher or things like that, you keep that up. But yeah, some of the some of the standards do specify retention periods. But at a minimum, I think if you've delivered training to employees, you're going to you may need to show that that training was provided as long as the person remains employed. Lisa, anything to add? No, I think you covered it. All right. All right, with that, let's move on to uh, the walkthrough. So during your facility walkthrough, the OSHA inspector is going to look around, uh, may interview employees, um, may take photos, 
Um, sometimes uh, they'll collect air samples if, if that's what they're there for to look at chemical concentrations or something like that. Or maybe uh, the inspector will, will perform noise monitoring. So, you know, any sort, any sort of those, those tests or monitoring could also occur during the walkthrough. Now, we often get asked if OSHA can look at all portions of a workplace. And the answer there is, you know, again, it depends on the reason OSHA is there. So for complaints, OSHA may stick to the area where the issue is alleged to be. Um, and in some cases, OSHA is going to focus on a specific issue, something like maybe hexavalent chromium or, or silica. And then in those cases, they're only going to look at the relevant areas. But if it's an inspection under, say, the amputation emphasis program, well, then OSHA has the right to look at all the machines that could create amputation hazards. And, you know, that can cover a lot of your workplace. Also, keep in mind, OSHA does retain the right to expand the scope of an inspection. Um, maybe they uh, see a hazard or have some other reason to do so. So OSHA has the right to do that. Uh, on the other hand, the site-specific targeting program, and that's the one based on injury rates, under that program, OSHA will conduct a wall-to-wall -wall inspection. We also get asked a lot about employee interviews. OSHA has the right to interview employees in private, so you don't want to interfere with this process. Now, if OSHA interviews a manager, well, then you can have someone else present, but not for those regular employee interviews. Also, when it comes to photographs, this is really, really key. Take your own photo of whatever the OSHA inspector takes. So, you know, inspectors uh, will also take measurements of machines. So in that case, you know, you take pictures of those machines as well. And then take photos from multiple angles because sometimes, you know, a photo uh, may show a worker closer to a fall hazard than another photo. Uh, or it may look like a, a guard opening is larger than it really is. So those, those photos can really help you out taking those photos from different angles. And then again, just like at the opening conference, here's where you, you don't want to be admitting to violations during the walkthrough. Now, it's certainly okay to correct hazards on the spot. In fact, it's a great idea to do it. Just don't, you know, out loud say it's a violation. That's a good point, Lisa. Um, you know, we're talking about cor correcting hazards immediately. So, correcting potential violations right away. Obviously, good idea. You want to show that, hey, if we see something wrong, we take care of it. But it's also a good idea because maybe it'll help you get a penalty reduction. Uh, now, there's some limitations on whether you can get a good faith or other penalty reduction. You're not going to get one for high gravity, serious violations, willful violations, repeated or failure to abate violations. OSHA is not going to reduce the penalty in those situations. You're also not going to get one related to uh, a fatality uh, or incidents resulting in serious injuries to employees. And of course, you're not, no matter what you push or quick fix here, you're probably not going to get a uh, penalty reduction for blatant violations that were easily corrected. And here, Moshe is thinking of things like uh, you need to reduce employee exposure to a hazardous atmosphere and there's a ventilation system, but it simply wasn't turned on. Or employees should be protected from falling objects by wearing hard hats 
and there's hard hats available, but no one's enforcing the requirement to wear them. Those are blatant violations. They're not going to give a penalty reduction for something that simple. Um, I, I understand it's a quick fix. You can do it, but you're probably still going to get dinged for it. All right, now we're going to say the walk-around is complete, and we're up to the closing conference. Here, the compliance officer will discuss the conditions observed and will indicate any apparent violations. <clears throat> You'll also be informed of how to file a notice of contest if you want to challenge the citations. And OSHA will tell you what assistance the agency can offer uh, to help you come into compliance. Now, the compliance officer isn't going to argue about the accuracy or validity of the citations. So you can ask questions, but this closing conference, this is not the time to say, well, we disagree, we don't think this, this citation should be included or whatnot. The inspector's putting it in. Um, in fact, this is just the proposed citation. The compliance officer is not actually going to give you a dollar amount at this time. That will be mailed to you later. So during a closing conference, we talked about records and safety plans earlier. You can produce records that show your compliance efforts. You may want to provide information that might even help OSHA determine how much time might be needed to abate an alleged violation. As we mentioned earlier, simple things like putting on a hard hat is one thing, but in other cases, you, know, you may need to make some pretty significant changes to the workplace. And of course, in some cases, more than one closing conference might be held. Uh, this could happen if, say, OSHA took air samples and they're waiting for laboratory results. They have to come back later. Or closing conferences might not happen immediately after the walkthrough. Uh, suppose the compliance officer needs more information to prepare the case file. Maybe they were there to, uh, you know, <clears throat> do an inspection of an injury and someone they wanted to talk to was not available, someone they wanted to interview. Uh, the most critical item, of course, though, in this closing conference is to make sure the compliance officer knows where the citation is to be sent. You want the name correct and you want the address correct because when they mail you the actual penalties and dollar amounts, you do not want that to get lost in the mail and you don't want it sitting on the wrong desk uh, in your own company if it got misdelivered internally. Really good point, Ed. You know, I did have a, a friend uh, who is a safety manager uh, who, who had that happen where a, a citation got sent to the wrong person. The person wasn't trained to send uh, or citations up the, the ladder to the right person and it sat around for days and days. And unfortunately, they were not able to, uh, you know, address that the citation uh, within time. So, um, so that's a really good point that you want to make sure um, that the right people are getting, getting the mail. Okay, let's move on to those citations that come in the mail. So after the violations have been noted, OSHA has six months to send you a list of citations. Now, usually you get them much quicker. Uh, the average is around 50 days from the opening conference. So citations, they basically inform you of regulations that you allegedly violated, the types of violations, and then they also include the proposed deadlines for you to correct the hazards. And that's known as the abatement date. Now you may also get a notice of proposed penalties for those alleged violations. Be sure to post a copy of each citation at or near the place a violation occurred. And you have to keep that up for three days 
or until the violation is corrected, whichever is longer. Now that's required even if you contest it. If you can't post the citation near the violation, then you need to post it in a prominent place where all affected employees are going to see it. If you want to, you can also post a notice of your disagreement and of your intention to contest the citation. Now, based on all of that, you do have a few options uh, for how to proceed. So first, your company can agree to the citation and the notification of penalty. You can correct the cited condition and pay any penalties. So basically, uh, you accept the results of the OSHA inspection. And you know, if the penalty is very small, this may be a simple option for you. Second, your company can contest the citation, the proposed penalty, the abatement date, or you can contest all of those things. Uh, now, before deciding on any of those options, you can also request an informal conference with the OSHA area director. And there you would discuss any issues related to the citation and the notice of penalty. But you only have 15 working days to notify OSHA that you plan to contest. And that's 15 working days from receiving the citations. So the clock is ticking there. And since we do get asked, I will point out those are OSHA's working days, not necessarily your company's working <laughs> days. All right. Now, the informal conference, this is a good time to ask for a better explanation of the violations, get an understanding of what's required, maybe try to extend the abatement date. You know, we said at the closing conference that was not the time to start these arguments. But the informal conference, that is a chance where you can kind of get a little pushback, get some more understanding uh, and see what's going on. This is also an opportunity to try and get uh, penalties lowered for a citation, even if you do agree with it. Sometimes it's like, well, you know, that happened, okay, but we don't think it was as serious as you thought. Now, to hopefully lower the cost or extend an abatement date, whatever you're trying to get here, bring along any documentation you have, especially if you are already abated the hazards. Show that you provided training. Show photos of the corrections you made, things like that show a good faith effort to address the hazard and protect your employees. Uh, you might be able to lower the fine amount. You might even be able to lessen the violation type. Uh, maybe you could get a repeat lowered to a serious. Now the key here is you've got to bring something pretty big to the table. Um, just showing you abated the hazard, that's not going to get you very far because OSHA expected you to do that anyway you would need to offer something above and beyond. Maybe bringing in a third-party consultant to do training or auditing. Uh, maybe adding engineering controls uh, <clears throat> rather than just relying on PPE. You know, something that shows you're really making some changes. Basically show OSHA what actions you took to correct any hazards. But always remember, this informal conference this does not extend the 15 working days you have to file a written notice of intent to contest. And if you miss that 15-day window, the citations revert back to the original penalties. So that's important to keep in mind. If you're going to contest, you've got to do it in writing. So let's talk about that. If you do choose to contest, uh, as I kind of hinted, your company must submit a notice of intent to contest in writing, again, within 15 working days, after you receive the citation and notice of penalty. 
Uh, and you got to do this even if you verbally stated your disagreement during an informal conference. That doesn't count. Now, when you contest or not, uh, we mentioned earlier if a fine amount is small, maybe you don't want to go through the, the challenges of doing uh, contesting a citation, but depending on the implications of that, we know that some contractors realize that if they get an OSHA citation on their record, it significantly reduces their ability to bid on public works contracts. So in those cases, um, you know, if it's going to impact your business, your ability to get contracts, then even a, a small dollar value might be something you contest aggressively. So these are things you need to consider, not just the amount of time you're going to put in to doing the contest, but, you know, what are the implications? All right, it got a little off track there, but I wanted to throw that in. The notice of intent to contest also needs to clearly state what you are challenging. Is it the citation itself? Is it the penalty amount? Is it the abatement date? Or is it some combination of these? And the notice you send has to indicate whether it's all of the violations in the citation, maybe there's three, four, five citations, or are you just looking at specific ones? So for example, you might write your notice that I wish to contest the citation and the penalty amount for items three and four of the citation issued on February 18th, 2021. Now, if you contest, the OSHA area director forwards the case to the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission, what we call OSHRIC. Uh, if you're in a state plan state, uh, there would be a, an equivalent state agency as well. Now, the commissioner then assigns the case to the Solicitor of Labor and then to an administrative law judge who will schedule a hearing. And that hearing contains all the elements of a trial. It can even include the examination and cross-examination of witnesses, and you may have legal representatives a legal representative present. And at this hearing, the judge may affirm or modify or eliminate the contested items. So you can see how the costs are starting to climb here potentially. And then as with any other legal procedure, there's an appeals process. Either party, you or OSHA, could request a review by the full review commission and that ruling, in turn, could be appealed to a U.S. Court of Appeals and eventually to the United States Supreme Court. Now, most cases don't go that far because by the time you're getting into appeals court level, you've probably got $100,000 in legal fees and you would need a pretty significant OSHA citation to justify that. But, you know, when you're considering whether to appeal, do work closely with your legal counsel because the point is the time and cost of the appeals process can get pretty significant. All right, so let's move on uh, to if you are unable to meet your abatement date. So if that happens, um, say there was an uncontrollable event or there were some other circumstances that kept you from being able to do that, you can file a petition for modification of abatement or a PMA with the OSHA area director. That petition also has to be in writing and it must be submitted no later than one working day after the abatement date. To show that you've made a good faith effort to comply, the PMA must include all of the information that you see uh, on your screen. So what steps you've taken to achieve compliance, what dates you took them, why you need that additional time, what has been occurring uh, that has kept you from meeting that date. 
what steps are you taking in the meantime to make sure that your employees are uh, safe from the hazard that you were cited for? Um, and then uh, a certification that the petition was posted, what date it was posted, and then a statement that the petition has also been furnished to the union if that is appropriate. And then that petition has to remain posted for 10 working days. During that 10 working days, any employees may file an objection to it also. Now the OSHA area director can grant your PMA or uh, may oppose it. If it's opposed, then it automatically becomes a contested case before the review commission. But if it's granted, OSHA may conduct a monitoring inspection, say up to a year later, and that's to ensure that, that you've been making adequate progress uh, toward abating those hazards. The OSHA area office will give you instructions about it during your informal conference. Okay, so we've covered what might lead to an inspection, what the inspection will consist of, and then how the citation process works. So now we're gonna shift gears a little bit. And we're gonna talk about how you can minimize your chances of being cited in the first place. Now you may never see an OSHA inspector, but it is better to be prepared for an inspection than to take your chances that OSHA is never going to come knocking at your door. So good preparation includes developing a safety and health program, uh, staying compliant, getting compliant with OSHA's regulations, you know, making sure your employees are trained on their OSHA required topics, identifying hazards, and then maintaining good records. And the best way to do that is by aggressively and proactively managing safety. And you can do that in a variety of ways, including those you see on your screen right now. And then we're gonna discuss each of those points in the next few slides. Thanks, Lisa. All right, obviously we've been talking about why it's a good idea to plan ahead for inspections, knowing what to expect, knowing your rights, and frankly deciding in advance how to handle these issues or other likely issues. Overall, what you wanna think about is what kind of image do we wanna to portray to the OSHA inspector? Do we want to be polite and helpful and professional or, you know, something less? So think about things like who is the OSHA officer most likely to encounter when he or she first arrives? Is it the front desk person? Is it someone from security? Uh, does, do those people know who to contact and what happens next? Is there a plan to get everyone that needs to be involved uh, to a designated area. So these are kind of things you want to think about. To give you a few complications, uh, I talked to one OSHA inspector who said she talked to the person at the front desk, showed her credentials, and said, I'm here to do an inspection. And the desk person said, okay, go ahead. Uh, and so she went ahead and started the inspection unsupervised in the facility. You don't want that to happen. But other things can happen too. I've got a friend of mine who is, was a safety manager for a facility with multiple locations, some of them more than an hour's drive apart. Well, if OSHA showed up at a different location, he needed somebody else uh, on tap to provide the walkthrough. And then earlier, of course, we talked about documentation. You have a pretty good guess of what the inspector is going to ask to look at and you can set a really good tone if you can provide that information as soon as possible. And once you've got these plans in place, you wanna train your team. They need to understand their role in the inspection process, 
whether to answer questions or maybe refer to another team member. We don't want people guessing at answers. If they don't know, tell them who to, who to ask. Um, how to answer questions. You don't need to offer so much information or inadvertently agree to a violation. Sometimes minimal responses are best. Uh, we talked about the importance of taking pictures. If OSHA takes a picture, you take one and take it from multiple angles. Never admit to a violation. Uh, we do want to correct hazards as soon as possible, but we don't want to get overly comfortable and say, man, that happened again. Uh, that would be bad. And, of course, the importance of listening, taking notes during the opening conference, uh, notes during the walk-around, and even at the closing conference. You can even do mock interviews, mock inspections, uh, to have people understand what an interview might look like, particularly supervisors who may be interviewed. So developing your plan and the training team, you know, that's not the end. You need to practice. If people get nervous, they may tend to chatter or start guessing again. Uh, so training and practice can help make them more comfortable through these, through these mock inspections. And this will also, you know, by doing some practice run-throughs, help you determine is our plan missing an element or do we need additional training in particular areas? Great info, Ed. Thanks. So it's obviously critical to keep track of regulatory changes. We talked about the change to your injury reporting requirements earlier, but there are other changes. Uh, there are changes in the silica rules and construction, walking, working surfaces, um, some additional record keeping changes have occurred in the last few years. So it's really you know, very important to keep on top of those changing rules. In addition, there are always new interpretations and new OSHA guidance coming out. And that's something that our team does. We monitor those things daily for any new guidance or changes to the regulations. And also be aware of OSHA enforcement programs. And those, uh, those issues are, are often tied to serious dangers that may have widespread impact to many employers. So we've talked about you know, the importance of, of having a good safety and health program. And the reason is that a good safety and health program offers a lot of benefits. And really the most important benefit is reducing injuries and illnesses. OSHA says businesses spend 170 billion, with a B, dollars a year on costs associated with occupational injuries and illnesses. And that comes straight out of company profits. But workplaces that establish a safety and health program can reduce their injury and illness costs by 20 to 40% and also reduce their likelihood of being inspected. So if you haven't done so already, establish a written injury and illness prevention program that outlines the hazards in your facility and then the steps that you're going to take to control them. That's another way to find and fix hazards before OSHA finds them. And it's also a requirement if you want to get a good faith penalty reduction if you are ever cited by OSHA. Some state agencies also, um, like California, require these types of programs. And it is something that federal OSHA is looking at for the future. Common elements of a good safety and health program are shown here on your slide. And then you also want to make sure that your programs and your plans are tailored to your specific employees and your specific operations. 
Ensuring your employees are trained, that's another huge part of surviving an OSHA inspection. Remember, OSHA inspectors can interview your employees. And during those interviews, they're going to ask employees if they understand the safety rules. To be effective, your training has to be presented in a language that workers understand. And that's really a big emphasis for OSHA right now. And so that may mean for you bringing in an outside trainer, or it could also mean using one of your non-English speaking workers, uh, maybe someone who's, who has uh, English as a second language to assist you with training. Now, if your employees can't answer questions about their training at OSHA, well, OSHA can cite you for lack of training. And that's even if you provide documentation that employees attended your training. That's a good point. And you know, and OSHA is not going to ask yes, no. Did you receive training on this? They're going to ask specific questions that the employee better be able to answer. Uh, hazard identification is another big area. Obviously, you know, the whole point of a safety professional in, in some words is to identify and correct hazards. Uh, so self-inspections where you look for missing machine guards, blocked fired exits, uh, things like that, as well as uh, reviewing accidents and near misses and determining if your corrective action process works. This can all help uh, keep your workplace safe. And then there are things like job hazard analysis or job safety analysis where you break down hazardous jobs into steps to try and identify and prioritize and eliminate or reduce some of those hazards. So take a look at your plans, make sure they're all up to date. And finally, you know, if you don't have the expertise in-house or just the time in-house, uh, you might want to bring in a third-party consultant for assistance. If you, even if you do have the expertise and time, because you've all got lots of free time on your hands, I'm sure. Uh, sometimes, sometimes it's good to get fresh eyes to look at your operations and your programs. They might spot something that uh, you didn't notice. And honestly, sometimes uh, employees or especially management will respond better if you can get a third party to back up something that you've been recommending for some time and say, hey, these are you know, this third-party recommendation confirms the corrective actions and improvements that I've been recommending. Okay, and as we mentioned earlier, one of the first things an a compliance officer is going to do is review records. Your ability, again, to quickly provide complete records shows that you're prepared and organized. And if you have trouble producing them, again, the inspector could cite you for not having them. And one more thing, uh, Obviously, OSHA has never liked programs that discourage employees from reporting injuries. Now, you can have incentive programs, absolutely, but ideally they should reward employees for becoming involved in the safety program, uh, reporting concerns, things like that, rather than rewarding them for not getting hurt. Uh, so, for example, if you offer incentives uh, for safe behaviors, for reporting hazards, just, just like I said, be wary of saying everyone gets a bonus check if we go a year without injuries. Uh, those kind of things may cause some team members to pressure each other to avoid reporting injuries, and OSHA doesn't like that. All right, and then don't be afraid to ask for time. OSHA will generally, as Ed has been saying, will give you at least an hour to get your necessary personnel available. So again, don't feel like you have to rush or begin right away just because OSHA's knocked at the door. Explain the situation, you know, and take it from there. Just kind of take a deep breath. 
Now, naturally, OSHA has the right to expand an inspection if uh, the inspector sees something in plain view or plain sight within the scope of the inspection. And then after the inspection, you have the right to contest the citation. Now, remember, that has to be done within 15 working days of receiving the citation. Can't emphasize that 15 working days enough. So let's recap what we covered today. First, we provided some background to help you evaluate your chances of being inspected. And there are things you can do to keep yourself off some of OSHA's inspection lists. Second, if your company is inspected, remember there's a method to the inspection process. And hopefully you've gained some insight today into what you need to do now to make sure that when OSHA does show up, that process goes as smoothly as possible. Then we also talked about preparing for the inspection both in terms of making sure the inspection goes smoothly and also in terms of your overall safety and health program and compliance efforts. We hope you never have to go through an OSHA inspection, but if you do, we hope you're prepared and that we've given you some insight and identified tools to help you in your preparation. Now, many of those great tools are available in the safety management suite. So if you haven't elected for our free trial, now's the time to do so. With the safety management suite, you ex can experience the benefits of superior audits and inspections. You can generate and print checklists, assign inspection responsibilities, and gather results for analysis and reporting. So it looks like we've got that poll up there. So if you'd like a complimentary trial to the safety management suite, please use that poll to let us know your interest. And as a thank you, we'll email you our OSHA inspections white paper. All right, with that, maybe Kevin can give us some of those questions that have come in. Yes, certainly, no, great great job to both of you, Ed and Lisa, thanks for your insights and expertise. Uh, before we get going into the q and I just wanna remind everyone of the evaluation survey that we're asking you to complete. The survey will open in a different screen after the presentation. We appreciate your input because it'll help us improve future webcasts. And again, thank you for taking that extra time to offer feedback. Um, so again, here are some more questions. We've got quite a few. Um, if we request an informal conference, can statements be that can statements that are made be used against us? Um, I'll grab that one, and and basically, yeah, the inform we call it the informal conference, but it's it's not as as informal as you might think. Uh, as you're taking notes, probably during that, OSHA can be taking notes too. So uh, there's nothing about the informal conference that says it's completely off the record. So yeah, if you make statements, agree to violations, things like that, uh, that can come back and and bite you. Before an inspection, can we cover machines or equipment with a tarp so it's not in plain sight? <laughs> um, that's an interesting one. I want to take that one. And Lisa, if you have anything to add, but we had people asking, you know, about the plain sight. If, if something's in plain sight, OSHA can, uh, can question, you know, expand the scope. So throwing a tarp over a machine or something uh, may look a little bit out of place. Uh, we, we've actually kind of seen it done or heard of it being done. Probably not a good idea uh, unless you routinely cover unused equipment with tarps. Otherwise, I think it's going to look a little odd. But what you can do is plan your route. So in one case, um, an attorney who worked with an employer said that uh, the, the, the machine that OSHA needed to inspect was on the far corner of the facility. Well, rather than walking the inspector all the way through the facility, 
uh, there happened to be a, an emergency fire door right next to the machine. They went out into the parking lot, circled the outside of the building, and went in through the fire door and then looked at that machine. So, you know, you can sort of plan your route um, to minimize the risk of in plain sight violations, but I think throwing tarps over things might be pushing it a little bit. But I'm not saying you'll get cited for that or OSHA is going to ask you to pull it off, but it, it may lead to some awkward questions. Yeah, it might actually draw more attention to the machine than, than just leaving it uh, without being covered. Next question states, we had an operator who lost a little bit off the end of one finger. Is this considered an amputation? Well, I can take that one. So um, very well might be um, because an amputation does not necessarily have to include um, bone or, or any specific length of a finger. Um, so what you want to do in that case is find out from the medical professional if they consider it an amputation or what's known as an avulsion. And then you would record based on that recommendation. Now, some states have different definitions of amputation than federal OSHA, so make sure you're looking up your state definitions also. But for federal OSHA and for most states, they want you to go with, when it's a fingertip, they want you to go with what the medical professional recommends. If a hospitalization doesn't occur at the time of the incident, but occurs later, does this still fall under the 24-hour rule? Lisa, I think that's yours too. Sure. Yeah. So um, if it falls outside of the 24 hours um, from the time of the incident, then um, you do not have to report to OSHA. That's probably still going to be recordable, but not reportable after that 24 hours after the incident. So this might be if someone got injured, a knee injury at work, and then three days later realized they needed to go in for knee surgery and had a hospitalization, that doesn't have to be reported, correct? That's correct. That's exactly oh. what that's for. You know, I wanted to add on to that one quickly because we talked about reasons that OSHA might come to your site and we talked about reporting serious injuries. But one we should have mentioned is uh, big news items. So if you have a, a fire uh, an explosion, obviously, something like that, that, that ends up on the nightly news, even if no one was injured, probably expect an OSHA inspector there the next day or two because um, they're going to want to know what went wrong, something like that. I just wanted to throw that out. Will OSHA focus on the responsibilities of the safety manager or will they also ask the supervisor of the injured employee? Uh, I think this was came in in response to um, investigating a reported injury, and boy, as to who they're going to, <clears throat> I mean, OSHA is going to uh, question people who may have bearing on that. If the safety manager provides training, for example, obviously they're going to want to know what kind of training was provided, but if the supervisor is responsible for enforcing safety on a day-to-day -day basis, they could talk to that person as well. So they may be looking from, for different feedback from each person they interview, uh, depending on that person's responsibilities. I don't think they're going to focus blame on one or the other because the citations, if any, will be issued to the company, not to the safety manager or to the supervisor. But um, yeah, I think they're going to focus on the, the person's areas of responsibility and probably interview multiple people. Lisa, anything to add? 
Yeah, I was just going to say that you, you kind of hit it at the end there, that they are also going to be, you know, interviewing any witnesses that may have seen uh, the incident um, or, or have things to add. So if there was an incident, that is, um, if we're just talking a violation, they may just interview regular old employees, too. So they they can interview pretty much anybody in your company. All right, we have time for one more question, and it looks pretty fitting just given the proficiency of so many of us with Zoom and, and other online platforms. It says, I'm the health and safety manager for multiple sites. If OSHA comes to inspect one of our locations, is it okay for them to request to call or FaceTime their safety manager during the inspection? That's an excellent so question. And, and you know, this last year during COVID has, you know, OSHA has relied a lot on just video inspections. So, um, you know, I, I think that would be a great idea to to video through your your safety manager. Ed, did you have more to add? Yeah, I agree. And like I said, I think uh, I don't, you know, OSHA doesn't necessarily restrict who comes along on the walkthrough. So as I said, if you're responsible for multiple locations and the plant manager is walking through, um, no reason you couldn't be on the phone or something like that, at least, uh, and, and be a virtual walkthrough along with the plant manager and the OSHA inspector. Definitely. Well, thank you. Uh, unfortunately, we have run out of time. Uh, sorry that we didn't get to everyone's questions, but all of today's unanswered questions will be forwarded on to our speakers. Once again, we hope you take the time to fill out the evaluation survey, survey to provide your feedback. Uh, with that, we end today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank Ed Zaleski, Lisa Newberger, everyone at JJ Keller, and all of you who listened in. Thanks and have a great day.